again, good morning, and uh, we are continuing in the series with Pastor Larry Gahn in Exodus. That's where we are now. If you want to turn to Exodus chapter 4, there are outlines. I think Jonathan was already giving some out, but if there's any left, uh, there's some back there uh, for the sermon. Let's hear now God's word for God's people from Exodus chapter 4. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it to the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some of the water from the Nile and pour it on the ground. And the water you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him, and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff, with which you shall do the signs." Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt and see whether they are alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At our lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched his feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of all the people. And the people believed 
And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Now, O God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Let's an important part of pretty much any story that there is a hero or a protagonist, someone who's going to come and bring resolution to the story to have to take you back to your middle school English class. You know, every story's got these rising conflict and then there's kind of a resolution to the story, a climax. But it's also true that some stories, as part of the kind of rising conflict of the hero, uh, is not only that the hero rescues somebody else, but sometimes the hero himself needs rescuing. So the hero is sent to go rescue somebody or a group of people, but the hero himself gets caught as well. And so he has to be rescued. And once he's rescued, then he can rescue the other people. It's kind of layers to the story. I'm pretty bad with pop culture. So I was even asking Derek this week is like, what story fits this? So you could probably think of one, uh, maybe recent or old that fits this, but this is something like what's going on in our story today in Exodus. You know, in previous messages, we've seen that Moses is set apart. He's going to be the deliverer. He's a special child. His mother sees this from early on. He even gets a deliverance, if you remember this, from the fate that most of the Hebrew baby boys are having in the Nile. Um, but we also see that as he grows up and as he uh, begins to see what he's to do, that there's a kind of first attempt that doesn't go very well. Uh, he intervenes. He kills an Egyptian slave master, thinking that this will be kind of the beginning of the deliverance. But it doesn't go well. And again, his, his own countrymen say, who made you prince over us? What do you think you're doing? Sort of a good question. You know, Moses really hadn't been commissioned at this point. Uh, he kind of just thinks he's doing what he's supposed to be doing, he takes it on himself. So we have uh, sort of salvation attempt number one and failed. Then Moses leaves to Egypt, goes to the wilderness. He starts a family there, becomes a shepherd. It's actually 40 years that he is there when the Lord appears to him. Uh, last week, Larry was looking at uh, the call of the Lord from the burning bush and particularly the Lord's revelation of himself when Moses says, who are you? you know, what are they? What's your name? And so the Lord uh, appears to him and, and speaks about who he is. Well, it's in today's passage that we uh, get Moses talking back to God. Uh, he makes some objections to this call. Well, well, exactly how is this going to work out? doesn't seem like the deliverer is really ready to do the delivering. And of course, the Lord is the ultimate deliverer of Israel, but he is going to do it through a representative. He's actually pretty determined to do that, that he's going to use some people as his agents to bring his people out of Egypt. This is who God is. He uses means. He uses people as part of his call. And this is what we're looking at today. So as we look at verse one, then we see Moses starts with kind of a list of objections to the call that the Lord has already given. Um, he's going to have three of them. The first is kind of a, a, a what if, or, or really it's even kind of stronger than that. Uh, Moses just says it flatly. They're not going to believe me. <laughs> They'll say the Lord did not appear to you. This is actually a pretty reasonable objection, actually. Um, it's actually kind of what happened before when he did try to do a deliverance because the Lord hadn't appeared to him. Um, Moses believed that he was doing good. He believed that he was starting kind of a movement for liberation, but 
they didn't believe him. So Moses is like, well, what if they don't believe me again? Uh, so objection that Moses is giving about the audience. So, I mean, I can try as hard as I want, God, to lead people, but they're not going to follow. It's not really going to work out. They're probably not going to believe me. Uh, no one's going to get behind it. It's kind of like when we say, well, if I'm called by God, what if I don't get any results? What if no one wants to listen to me? What if I feel called to do something great for God, but no one's going to listen to me? Well, in response, the Lord doesn't really even address it immediately. I love this. He just starts by asking Moses, well, what do you have? What do you got with you, Moses? What's that in your hand? And Moses is like, it's a stick. <laughs> it's a staff. Everybody's got one of these. And the Lord says, okay, throw it down. And now the stick is a snake. Uh, God gives Moses signs now. Uh, really, these are common, everyday things that God is going to turn into fearsome things. You know, a staff. A staff is just a stick. It's not particularly exciting. Most people had staffs as they walked around, but God turns it to a snake. And God says, healthy hand. He has Moses put his hand on his cloak and out. And suddenly it becomes a diseased hand. Leprosy. Scary. And back. And then water to blood, a kind of future sign if these others don't work. Now, we don't have to dwell too much on these signs, but let me just make some observations as we think about these things. And I think a lot of times when we think about miracles in the Bible, we kind of have to balance a few things out. You know, on the one hand, we need to recognize the Bible is full of miracles. For moderns like us, particularly for intellectual types, we need to get this. God is not ashamed to do the miraculous in order to confirm the work he's doing. He does it repeatedly in the Bible. Of course, it's a reminder that God is in control of everything. He is the I am, as he just said. He's not bound by the laws of creation that he set up. But what God doesn't do is just expect Moses to believe apart from any kind of reasonable evidence. You know, it's interesting. He doesn't sort of say, uh, turn up the dial on kind of mystical experience and say, Moses would just retreat inward and do you feel like this is true? He doesn't, he doesn't say, come on, Moses, just be more spiritual. I'm not going to do anything to show you this. No. God doesn't make sort of airy-fairy promises that have no basis in history. He's going to demonstrate that he really is at work in history. He's over it. He's control of it. But on the other hand, we actually need to get something, too, about what these miracles are not. They're not meant to be kind of foolproof guarantees that Anybody will believe them. I mean, it's, it's interesting. If you kind of think about this whole conversation, Moses is still talking to a burning bush that is not burning up. It's like, you know, th this is kind of a sign actually directly in front of him as he's talking to this, and he still needs some more help with his doubt. You know, Pharaoh is going to see these same signs. He's not going to believe them. These are confirmations for faith. And in other words, a kind of faith that's doubting, a faith that's weak, that's confirmed by what God is doing. And really, this is the, the Bible's word for this is signs. Miracles are signs. They're not really about themselves. They're not just about, oh, cool, extraordinary things. It's that they're meant to be pointers. They're meant to be demonstrations. I'm at work over here, and yes, I'll show you a little sign of that by this particular thing. God's at work on a bigger thing, and he gives us a sign that he's bringing redemption. But even after seeing these miraculous signs, they're, they're happening right in front of him. Moses still objects. He moves on to another objection. 
you know, I'm just not a very good speaker, God. I'm not eloquent, either in the past or, or since you've been speaking to me. I love that second part. It's like, you know, God, as you showed up here and you're speaking to me uh, out of a burning bush, uh, it hasn't helped, and I'm not really speaking any better right now in this conversation. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not really expecting I can walk into the most powerful man in the world in his throne room, and suddenly that's going to get better. You know, God, I, I just don't have the abilities to make this work. But just as God gives signs and visible demonstrations of what he's doing in real history, God says, well, I'm going to give you real words. I'm, I'm going to put words in your mouth. I'm going to help you speak actual words when the time comes. So God knows us. He made us. He knows our abilities. You know, the Lord doesn't answer, oh, hmm, good point, Moses. You know, I hadn't actually thought about that. Um, you're not very good at speaking. I guess I really should find somebody better. Now, again, because God knows us, because God made us, he can either increase our abilities or he can just simply use our abilities, however flawed they are, to do extraordinary things. And that's what God says. He says, I'll be with your mouth. I love that. I'll be alongside your mouth. I'll help your mouth out. And I'll teach you. Another good point, too. Now, part of the way that God uses our abilities is to increase them. I'll, I'll teach you how to speak. I'll teach you what to do. Moses' objections are, are finally getting answered. You know, God keeps coming back at the objections. It's like, oh, okay, God answered that one. So finally, Moses kind of just throws up his hands and he says, anybody else? Can you just find anybody else? It's actually about as open-ended as it gets. Somebody other than me. It's kind of what the text says. Anybody. Just not me. It's this last objection uh, that kind of seems to be the real underlying one. You know, sometimes we do this in ordinary conversation where it's like, I'll kind of give the shallow objections. Oh, somebody met that. It's like, well, I just don't want to do this. I don't want it to be me. You know, I'm afraid to go. This is difficult. But God's incredibly patient, isn't he? Even he does get angry with Moses, but he still meets this objection as well. Again, God says, all right, I'm done with you. No, he doesn't say that. He has another concession. He says, well, what about your, what about your brother, Moses? So just as God gave visible signs when Moses' faith was doubting, just as he said, well, I'm going to give you actual words when he said I'm not eloquent, he says, well, I'll give you some actual human help in this mission. Your brother, Moses, he's going to help you. He'll be your mouth, Moses, and I'll help him. Isn't God gracious? Do you see how God loves to use means and instruments? He you know, God could do this all by himself. He could do it exactly as he wanted, but he wants to use Moses. And he says, all right, Moses, you want to use your brother? That's fine. Sort of layers of means. I'll use you, Moses, and you get your brother Aaron to work out this plan. We see in this first section how God works with his people. Uh, each of Moses' objections, the, the Lord deals with. He says, okay, I'll make a concession. These are things that God deals with and works with. You know, God uses miraculous things in history to confirm our faith as well. Signs really in the Bible aren't just for those who witness them. You know, you may not have witnessed miraculous signs in the same way as Moses, but in the Bible, these signs become testimonies then. So people pass it down and say, we saw this sign and we know that God was at work. And of course, the greatest sign in scripture is that God raised his son from the dead. It's not a sign that we saw with our own eyes, but we have testimony of it. And it's a good testimony, by the way. You know, try thinking about 
the history of the world sometime, um, as if you know, the way things are right now, as if there weren't an empty tomb that Easter morning. It's a good testimony of why things are the way they are. Certainly God does continue to act in extraordinary ways as well. He condescends to our weakness to confirm our faith. He gives us signs like the sacraments, by the way, to confirm our faith. We're weak in faith. God's providence is also a reminder to us, as it was to Moses. He says, I made you, Moses. I, I know. I made the mouth. I can help you. God can teach you. And, and, and he can work with what he has given with you. But especially don't forget this last one. You know, not only does God uh, point us to history, not only does he point us to his providence over making us, you know, God gives us other people who are gifted in ways that we aren't. He says, I made Aaron, and I know he's good at speaking. Why don't you use Aaron as well? We can ask us ourselves today, are, are you letting other Christians help you, that God is gifted, help you in your weakness? Are you just trying to kind of do it on your own? Are you begging God just find somebody else? God's patient with Moses and his doubts, and God's patient with us. He's generous in giving us what we need to support us in our faith. In this next section that we're looking through, verses 18 through 23, Moses is now commissioned to Egypt. He's been given these signs. It's pretty short. It's kind of transitional. The main thing here is that Moses gets more confirmation. He goes to his father-in-law, and his father-in-law says, Yeah, I, I got you. I, I'll bless you in this. You go to Egypt. The Lord says, go to Egypt. And it sets this kind of travel narrative. Moses is on the way back to Egypt. He's drawing near to Egypt. And the Lord actually gives him some foreshadowing of what's going to happen there. He tells Moses to do these signs, not only before the people, but now before Pharaoh. God's going to empower him. And most of all, the Lord sets the stage to think about this showdown that's going to happen, that we're going to come to in the following weeks. Pharaoh and God's people. And what it is, is a showdown. It's a battle for firstborn sons. God says, you tell him, Israel is my firstborn son. These people are my son. Let my son go so that he can serve me. In other words, kind of like dad shows up and said, by the way, these people you've been putting in slavery, that's my kid. And I want you to let him go. And here's the threat, he says. If you don't let my son go, I'm going to kill your son. It's kind of tit for tat. This is what happens when you mess with my son. But there's even more to it than that. Firstborn sons you might know in the ancient world sort of represent the family. The future of the family sort of rides on the firstborn son. They carry the family legacy. Uh, you know, really in the Bible, this goes all the way back to the statement that the seed of the serpent, the son of the serpent, the children of the serpent is going to war against the seed of the woman. It's kind of a battle for the future of these two family lines. We'll see more in this in Exodus, but I want you to see how this foreshadowing is kind of the immediate context for what happens next. Yeah, these next few verses are very short and very bizarre. It seems to come out of nowhere, but I want to tell you they actually are at the heart of our passage today. And if we want to understand it, we kind of need to see uh, what it is in terms of what we just said. Moses is drawing near to Egypt. He's told that this is a battle of the firstborn sons. And the next verse, verse 26, says that what happens, happens in a lodging place on the way. You know, while they're going is where God is going to deal with firstborn sons. And this is a story about a firstborn son. 
Some of your translations may not have it this way, but the text is actually really ambiguous about who the Lord meets, who he's seeking to kill. Um, it just says the Lord met him. There's no pronoun. There's no, I'm sorry, there's no name supplied for us. Most people assume this is, this is Moses because Moses has been talking to the Lord. And certainly that can make sense in a lot of ways. But if we kind of look immediately before and immediately after, um, it's kind of interesting. And it leads us in a slightly different direction as well. We've just heard about firstborn sons. And then immediately after the Lord seeks to kill whoever this one is, we have Zipporah, Moses' wife, circumcising their son, presumably their firstborn son. So notice with me something. In verse 20, look at verse 20. It says, Moses took his wife and his sons, plural, and headed to Egypt. So Moses has got multiple sons. He's got more than one. But then look again at verse 25. Zipporah circumcises her son, singular. We only hear about one son, not, not the others. You know, whose son do you think this is? Well, this is the firstborn son, most likely. I have to jump ahead in the story a bit. I think this is what's going on here. But think about what's coming down the road in Exodus. I know most of you know the story. But that final sign the Lord's going to give to his people to free his son, my firstborn son, from Egypt, it's a plague on the firstborn sons of Egypt. And in fact, when the Lord's telling Moses about this final plague, this is the words he says. He says, All the firstborn throughout the land of Egypt shall die. That's the opening words for this final plague. In other words, there's no distinction here. Every firstborn son is going to die tonight. And it's only then, later on in the verses, that he says, I'm giving a provision, by the way, for you, Israel, that's not going to happen to you if you do these things. And he gives them the provision of the Passover lamb, and he says, when I see the blood on your doorposts, I will pass over that house, and the plague will not befall you. Do you see what's going on here? As the Lord gives Passover instructions to Moses, he says also uh, that only the circumcised are to partake in Passover. God's going to make a distinction, he says, between his people and the people of Egypt. And he says it's the circumcised who can eat of this Passover lamb, who can take shelter in God's provision for this from the from death that's coming. And what we have here then on the way to Egypt, as, the, as Moses is going to be the deliverer to Egypt, they've stopped for the night. By the way, how do we know that they stopped for the night? The word lodging place is the word for inn. It's a, it's a place, you, it's a way stop for the night. So, by the way, what, what time does Passover happen later on? At night, midnight. We've got kind of a similar scene here. And what does the Lord find when he comes to Moses' family? Uh-oh, Moses' firstborn son isn't circumcised. The problem is that Moses is going to Egypt. He's going to rescue the circumcised people of God from the uncircumcised Egyptians. And uh-oh, there's a blurred distinction now within Moses' own family. The leader of this deliverance. Who do his kids belong to? Let's remember that circumcision uh, for God's people in the Old Covenant, it wasn't kind of an optional spiritual practice if you were interested to kind of up your, you know, your spiritual devotion. No, Genesis 17 says from the beginning... Um, As he called Abraham, he says, this is my covenant between you and your children after you throughout their generations. Every male among you must be circumcised. It shall be the sign of the covenant between us. He says, any male among you that is not circumcised shall be cut off from the people. He has broken my 
covenant. So that's the stage, that's the, the background for what's going on here. We, we can only speculate why Moses doesn't circumcise his sons, but you can probably guess that maybe some of the reasons. Uh, perhaps Moses thought, you know, he's been kind of already cut off from God's people. Uh, he's out in Midian and it's like, well, I'm out in the wilderness. Why bother with the sign of the covenant at this point? You know, there's no indication that Moses himself wasn't circumcised. He most likely was as being uh, born a Hebrew then. Uh, but he has certainly been living as an Egyptian. He's been living out in the wilderness. But now he's going back to his people. He's going to represent them. He's going to lead them. And the way God provided for this deliverance is a display of blood. It's how God does this. A display of blood. A display of sacrifice in some sense. What happens with their son, Gershom? Gershom is the firstborn. Not only is he uh, circumcised, as God's covenant says to it says Zipporah touches his feet with it. Now, again, um, it's just a pronoun. There's nowhere where it says Moses' feet. Some of your translations may actually say that she touched Moses' feet, but it doesn't say that in Hebrew. Um, in my ESV, there's a kind of footnote. They do put Moses in there, but then they have a footnote that says, we're inserting Moses as a best guess, basically. But is that the best guess? You know, Would it be Moses' feet that are being touched here? I think it actually makes sense to read this as Gershom, the one who's being circumcised. Here's another help for you on that. Uh, feet is a Hebrew word that can just as well be translated legs. I know this might sound kind of strange to our ears, but legs are actually regularly compared to as doorposts in the ancient world. Um, there's one place that actually shows up in our Bible, and that's the fun book of the Song of Solomon. Uh, where she's describing her lover, and he's great, and his legs are strong and mighty like doorposts. There's actually ways that the ancient world talked about this. Well, repeatedly in the Bible, when you sacrifice, when there's blood shed, it's not just about the blood shed, it's displaying that blood for God to see. He sees that blood has been shed, and he passes over, and it's his means of redemption. And there's one other point that's great on this as well. The word touch in, in the translation, some old translations actually says that she threw uh, it at Moses' feet. There's nothing th throwing going on here. She's not angry. It's actually just she smears the blood on the feet or the legs. You know what's interesting? That's the exact same word that God says later on when he says, you take that lamb, you kill it, and you smear its blood on the doorpost. You apply that, but later happens in the sacrifices in the temple as well. The fact that, Moses, uh, that Zipporah does the circumcising and not Moses has sometimes made the suggestion, well, maybe Moses really is the one under attack. The Lord has come in the middle of the night. There's actually kind of an old tradition that Moses is basically having a seizure and, and Zipporah is like realizing the Lord is at work in this and somehow she realizes we haven't circumcised our sons. We're going back to Egypt. And she's the hero of the story. Um, and there's a symbolic point about, I think, Zipporah doing it as well, is after the circumcision, she says, this has made my son a bridegroom of blood. Again, this is probably not speaking to Moses. Moses is kind of out of the story. This is Zipporah taking charge. This is doing with, with her son. And she says, this has made my son a bridegroom of blood. Now, it's a phrase. There's all kinds of things that could be going on here, but here's a few hints. The term bridegroom of blood is a covenant phrase, for sure. Uh, it's an interesting uh, that later on, uh, the Jewish rabbis, as they had a, says they have a custom that when a son is circumcised, 
that they're called a spouse at their circumcision because the Lord is betrothed to Israel. So maybe that's an echo of what's going on here. Zipporah is a kind of stand-in for Israel here. Uh, Israel as the bride of of Yahweh and a mother of the seed, the seed that's going to deliver ultimately. But this phrase also reminds us of the concept of a kinsman redeemer, another important concept here in Scripture. Um, and there's a word, there's a word uh, the word here has a sense not only of spouse, but of, of kinsman. The son has now become a kind of kinsman redeemer by his sacrifice, by his cutting off to save them. Uh, Gershom has kind of, in a sense, by this, he saved the whole household because the whole household was, in a sense, in danger. Now, it might seem kind of funny, by the way, to mix these metaphors of son and husband. That seems really strange. You're told in your English class, don't mix metaphors. But the Bible mixes metaphors all the time, actually. Because what are we as Christians? Oh, we're Christians are children of God. We're sons of God. Oh, and we're also bride of Christ. Wait, which are we? Are we sons or are we the bride? Because those two things don't normally go together. Well, they do in the Bible. Sons and the bride. Well, Israel is God's firstborn son. And Israel is now being betrothed to God. Exodus is, in a sense, a kind of wedding scene. God's rescuing his bride. He's going to bring her to herself. He's actually going to build a house for her, a tabernacle later on. There's actually another thing that's going on here that's great. There's a close parallel to the book of Ruth, and it's going on in the book of Ruth where Naomi, if you might remember the story, has a daughter-in-law, Ruth, and she needs a kinsman redeemer, and Boaz becomes her kinsman redeemer. But then they have a son, and the son is called the kinsman redeemer for Naomi. It's kind of weird because it sounds like the son is almost a husband to Naomi because she lost her husband. In other words, this son has become like a husband to Naomi, a protector, her redeemer in some sense. Well, what's the point of all of this? All this stuff that's going on in this passage? Well, it's a kind of foreshadowing ahead of what's going to happen. God is going to come. He's going to deliver his people. He's going to do it through blood. And it's a provision right now for Moses. Moses was in danger because he was in danger with his own family needed some delivering. He needed to get right in God's covenant. And there's a provision for him, even if it came at a kind of cost, shedding of blood. And of course, uh, beloved, this, this is ultimately pointing us to Christ. The seed of the woman uh, who is cut off, not just symbolically cut off, but whose blood is shed as a refuge for his family. I don't often quote commentators, Larry doesn't either, in sermons, um, but there's a quotation I found that, that's so great uh, that I want to read to you here. And it's partly great because it comes from a Jewish rabbi. In other words, this is somebody who doesn't see Christ in this passage. But it's not, it's, it's, it's just amazing to hear this read and think about what he's saying. This rabbi writes, and in thinking of the story, it's often the case that someone suffers on the account of the sins of another. But he says here, the shedding of blood of an innocent person saves another from their sins. The one takes the place of another. And in so doing, they're all received back from the dead. And it's the blood that makes a new kind of marriage. The blood, rather, of the husband that's now a token of this union. Isn't that incredible? An incredible passage, incredible way to think about what's going on here. That the shedding of blood of one another saved another, has shown God that his covenant is at work in this, and he passes over. What's the response to this? It's the response 
that happens at the end of this chapter. And we get to the end of this chapter. There's more that goes on. But the people hear that God has visited them. He's seen their affliction and he's going to deliver them and they worship. They worship God. Today's passage really is just a way to tell the gospel story. You know, God comes and calls weak people, people who don't really want to be involved in this, and God works with them. He calls us to take part in his redemption, but he redeems us first. He gives us provision for our sin. He brings us into a covenant. It's a costly redemption. That's what circumcision actually pointed to. It's circumcision Part of the old covenant, we don't have to do it anymore. It was pointing ahead to the cost, as Passover was too. Wounds of blood, a bloody sacrifice that would make people free and make people part of God's covenant. As we look at this chapter for application as well, there's there's really a lot we could think about, but I wanted to just think about a few. Moses' objections are probably something you can relate to. As you think about, I'm just, who am I? to be a part of God's mission, and you are. And God says, I'm going to be with you. This should be encouragement. It should be challenge for us, for God's call on our lives. But I'm especially struck by this particular point, and that is to bring deliverance to others, we first need to experience deliverance fully. You know, Christians in this country want to see our country, our land, uh, have a revival, to be delivered from our national sins, of which there are many, so Christians are saying, we want to save America, but and that's great. But as we run off to save others, sometimes we do have to say, are we fully living in God's covenant? Have we taken seriously his promises? Have we taken seriously the provisions he's given to us? You know, how can we get more in line with God's covenant promises and plan? I think at the very least, it's like something of Moses. It means looking first to our own family. Yeah, we want to save others, save other families. Our own family is a place of discipleship, a place of applying God's covenant promises and and training them up, of of giving testimony to what God has done in this. We might be afraid of how all of this marks us as different from those around us, but I think we really can trust that this is how God brings deliverance to his people. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that Christ is our Deliverer, that our deliverance is secure in Him. We praise you, O God, that it was His blood shed, cut off on the cross, that your wrath is satisfied so that we might be your holy bride. So we pray, Father, that by your Spirit you might help us to trust your call to us, that you will empower us as weak people to bring deliverance to others. And Father, we pray, be with us too that we might believe that you are the God of our salvation and of our families. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.